when you trusted Christ, when you came to faith in Christ, whether you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, whatever you may have done, uh, the, the germ, the kernel of the gospel is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is putting your trust in Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. Embracing faith is trusting him, period. And we have lots of you know, nuances of that. Different churches will emphasize different things. But the gospel is simply and clearly the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that we trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ sufficient to forgive our sins to save us for all eternity. When that happened in your experience, and I hope all of you here have that assurance that you know that you know that you know you're rightly related to Jesus Christ, the most important decision you'll ever make for now and all eternity. I hope you know that. Once you make that decision, uh, that is the point in time salvation. We've talked about benchmarks before. There's a stake in the ground. The process then of living is sanctification. So we're living by faith, living faithfully to become more conformed, more transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know what your experience was like when you trusted Christ, whether it was emotional, dramatic, exciting, whether it was a big deal, or whether it was sort of a recognition. You heard the gospel and pieced it together, and okay, I understand, I embrace this by faith. And there seems to be a continuum. Some had a huge emotional experience. Mine was emotional in the sense I was forgiven. I was blown away that I was forgiven for all my sins. Uh, other people are like, well, you know, yeah, I understood that, but there was no emotion behind it. What happens now? After we walked out, prayed the prayer, said the words, trust to Christ, not to be casual, but after that decision, what then happens? How do we then grow? It is difficult to grade or to measure our spiritual growth. It is difficult to measure uh, our sin. It's, it's challenging. It's hard. It's complicated. There's no chapter and verse that says, do these 10 things then. That was one of the problems of trying to follow the law to the letter. Now, if you're like me, and in some respects, I hope you're not, because I am very weird and odd and if you've been around here, you like odd. It's good. It's good to be different. We're peculiar people. I mean, we had a jazz Christmas concert. What's not to like, right? It's a wonderful place to be. But I'm a little odd. And I look at people, not judgmentally, but there are people that I think are far better Christians than me. I know Jim, who spoke last week. Jim shares Christ on the backstroke. Jim leads people to Christ left and right. I am amazed. I'm jealous. I'm angry. I'm half-joking. It's so easy for him. It's like falling off a log. Me, I work like crazy and make somebody mad. <laughs> I have friends who know how to pray. I work at prayer. If you're part of Stonebridge, we give out the handbook to prayer by Ken Boa if you end up calling this your regular place of worship because I'm convinced most Christians do not know how to pray or pray very poorly or repetitively, and they don't understand prayer. So we've tried to be instructive in that regard. But there's some, I won't name them in this room, but, and I don't want to be stereotypical or condescending, but it seems like widows, older widows, pray uh, more effectively, uh, more persistently, more passionately than the rest of us. And I'm an 
awe at some of these women who know how to pray. Maybe it takes a lot of hardship in life and losing a spouse before you understand your dependence is completely on Jesus Christ. Talk to Jean Hendricks frequently. I think she's 90 <laughs> this year. And um, that woman prays for everything. It just boggles my mind. So, we, parents, some Christian parents, some sitting now look at you young parents in this room. We just shake our heads. We go, I'm amazed our children survived, <laughs> number one. If we had to do all over again, what we would do differently, right? You play all those games. Some of you are remarkable parents. I mean, some of your kids are like, they're not perfect, but they're pretty close. Like, they're, they're wonderful. They help. They love the Lord. They're kind. They look you in the eye. They're like, oh, oh. well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to run to the egregious sinner and say, well, that person lives in sin, and that person's terrible, and they live with their boyfriend, girlfriend, their, you know, whatever. That's not my point of comparison. My point is just observing, how do I measure growth? How do I measure sin if this point in time salvation is secure and sanctification is the process by which we grow? How do we understand growth? I don't think this is a fool's errand question. I think it's important. We have uh, three grandchildren here locally that we see quite often, and uh, the little girl just this recently is rolling, turning over. She can turn over, and she's going to crawl in a matter of days. I mean, she's, you know, it's going to happen. They all learn differently. One was verbal, really early, hasn't missed a word since. <laughs> Another one is, you know, he's tough and tumble. He's a lot of fun. He's, a, he's just a bundle of energy. He's a terror at times. It's just hysterical. One's like super smart, reading ahead of his schedule. My grandson, reading ahead of schedule. <laughs> Brilliant young man. A little girl's just happy and smiles and loves her Cece and Saba. They're all different. They learn different, they grow differently, but we're looking for growth. You got to roll over, you got to crawl, you got to walk. And you know what's interesting about growth? You never go back. A child who learns to walk does not go back to only crawling. A child who begins to ingest solid food does not go back to pure formula or breastfeeding. There's growth. So there is a way in our nomenclature to look at how a person grows Normally, different rates, but there is a trend, right? They, they're growing along the way. If conversion brings about new life, if conversion brings about the forgiveness of sin, if conversion brings about a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would argue from the scripture, we are to grow. We are to mature into something we're not. A way to think about some hindrances and helps in this journey is a pendulum. This is not new. It's not perfect. You know every illustration at best stands on three legs. So we have legalism, liberty, and licentiousness. Legalism is, of course, when we construct a set of do's and don'ts. I have these things I do and I don't do. If I sin, I do some things I'm supposed to do, and I try to avoid and repent of the things I've done. Uh, the problem with legalism is that it's never sufficient. It always adds to the Scripture. And we tend to burden it on other people. Well, they're not a good Christian because they don't do this. They can't be a good Christian because they do that. That's when legalism is insidious. 
And this is what the Judaizers in Paul's situation in the Philippians were laying burdens back on him. Licentiousness is living without restraint. In common terms, it's LGBTQA, it's I can live with my boyfriend, girlfriend, I can do whatever I want, I don't have to obey those laws, uh, I can ignore Pauline literature in the New Testament because he wasn't Jesus. It's just about love, we just do what we want. And an educated person who's licentious knows 1 John 1, 9 backwards and forwards, and they know they can always get forgiveness for sin. Just get out of jail free card. Both extremes end in shame and guilt. Both extremes at quiet times will end up in shame and guilt. Either the legalism who are forcing shame and guilt on others, which is a reflection of their own challenge, or do whatever you want, judging you because you don't do whatever you want. Both extremes of the pendulum are excesses. Liberty is in the middle. Liberty is that freedom not to sin, but to obey. Most of what I'm going to talk about this morning is so counter to the Western mind frame, it's going to take you some concentration, thinking, and probably further study and meditation. We're so hardwired the way we look at life to understand the context this is written, the Judaizers, what Paul's up against, and what he's telling the Philippians takes some homework. And Paul is saying in this issue of liberty, I have freedom to obey. That doesn't sound like freedom. The way we think in a Western vehicle. Freedom to do what I want to do. No, freedom to obey. Freedom to obey is where you find real joy. Freedom to obey is where you find real relationships. Isn't it amazing? Every one of us in the room could tell stories of relational collateral in our history. Friendships that went awry, that were broken. I was reading the Proverbs this morning about it's harder to do certain things than to deal with a broken brother. It's impossible to repair sometimes. So, so we've got these trajectories where we think about freedom to obey. It doesn't make sense to my Western brain, but no, if you obey, you don't have guilt and shame. If you obey and you find other believers who are in the same lockstep, you have real relationships, not broken ones. If you understand what it means to have freedom to obey, you find solid pleasure, not the passing pleasure of sin, but long, long suffering, long joy. Cindy and I coming up, 42 years of marriage. 42 years, some of you have been married longer, and that's fine. It's not a contest. But my point is, that's a long time. And you know what? I still love being around her. And I think she still likes me. I still love being around her. Some of you who lasted longer than us in age, and you go, yep. And you can't imagine life without that person. Because that's God's design. You don't get there overnight. I forget the author, uh, way off track here. Marriage is a long journey. Most couples start before they come to the first vista. It takes years to find those vistas. And then when you do it together, you go, wow, we did that together. And it solidifies. It's God's plan. Not that we're smart. It's God's plan, and we're trying to follow him. So when you have your quiet time, times when the technology is off and out of hand, when you're sitting on your favorite place with your coffee or tea or whatever beverage of choice, your Red Bull, and uh, you're by the lake, taking a walk, by a river, by a mountain, in a cabin, 
And isn't it interesting how stuff just sloughs off? We lived in Virginia for 12 years. We would leave the D.C. area. About 20 minutes outside of the Beltway, you just felt like, oh. Some of you in L.A. know exactly what I'm talking about. And then when you go home, it's like, you know, minutes you go back, it just clamors. But when you get disconnected, literally, from technology and metaphorically from the stress of life, you can think clearer, which is why we need those respites, why we need to get away. And when you're in that respite, when you're in that refreshing place, it kind of clarifies our condition. It does me anyway, and I think it's universally true. There's a relief and a restorativeness and a centering where what's important? What's important? My email, I've given up. I've given up. My email box will never be empty unless I just delete it all. I just can't do it anymore. Sorry if I don't answer your email. It's not that I'm mad at you. There's too many of you. <laughs> I would do it all day and never make a dent in it. So this life of finding not licentiousness, not legalism, but liberty in Christ, and I can take a pulse and say, am I growing what does that mean? And that's what we're going to look at today. The apostle comes to our aid. This passage, only five verses, will break in two parts. We'll spend most of the time on the first part, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already attained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal or the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have, if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Paul has spoken of his life and testimony in the previous section of the verses, if you've not been with us in Philippians. He's up against these, we're calling them Judaizers, who are accusing him. It's affecting the Christians in Philippi. And so his letter is trying to clarify, listen, I was a Hebrew, I was a scholar, I was a lawyer of the law of Judaism. Uh, I have more pedigree and more certificates and degrees than you'll ever have. And I count that as rubbish. I count it as loss to gain Christ. I'm going to flush everything the world evaluates as important because I get to gain Christ. The problem, we like all that, the problem for us to apply and understand is when he starts talking about that I might know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. Eh, I don't want to know that part. I don't want to have anything to do with fellowship of suffering. Being conformed to his death in order to obtain the resurrection from the dead. I don't, I don't like that part. Well, this is part of the package. I want you to think today a little more than a casual, semi-entertaining sermon. And I want you to pay attention to what the apostle is telling you and me, because this is so contra the way the Western mind thinks. Bob Deffenbaugh, if you've been around Stonebridge, we talk a lot about Tom Constable and his notes. If you're not familiar with Constable's notes, you can go on your search engine, and in a second you'll find all of his notes. 
download them in a Word document or a PDF. Leave your study Bible on the shelf. Just get Tom Constable's notes on your device, your tablet, your whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a study Bible on super steroids. Along with that is Bible.org, I've talked about many times. Bible.org is a repository uh, run by uh, some really good guys. They're the translators of the Net Bible, the new English translation. But there's a gentleman named Bob Deffenbaugh, D-E-F-F-I-N-B-A-U-G-H, who is a man I highly respect. And he writes uh, long, long commentaries on Romans and Philippians. And I just scanned him looking at what he said about this passage, and this illustration was appropriate. He writes, my wife and I have five grown daughters. Years ago, our girls were young. Did I mention he's been in ministry almost 50 years as a pastor of a church? Uh, when our girls were young, we would load them in the car uh, each summer and set out from Dallas to visit our families in Washington State. After two hours on the road, we would come to Wichita Falls, Texas. It was absolutely predictable. One of our girls would, was virtually certain to ask, Daddy, are we at Grandma and Grandpa's yet? There was no way to tell them we'd covered only a little more than two hours and 100 miles, and then we had three more days and over 2,000 miles to go. We were still on our way, but we'd not arrived. And he entitles this section, Not Arriving, Still Striving. Not Arriving, Still Striving. I kind of like that, but I kind of don't, because I, I don't think that he's misleading. The title suggests i got to keep doing something. What we're going to talk about repeatedly is the position of salvation. You trusted Christ and Christ alone, a benchmark, a date and time perhaps. And then sanctification is this faithful living in our salvation. We're faithfully working out our salvation. We're not working to gain salvation. We're working faithfully in our salvation. That is a fine nuance the Western brain has a hard time wrapping around. Because we're if then. If I do this, then that will happen. How many of us, myself included, in prayer, if I pray, then that will happen. If I pray, then God might. If then. If then theology is, is difficult to break free from because our Western economy, literally and metaphorically, if you do this, these things will generally come true. That's not how Scripture unfolds, and this is where the Western mind has to think a little bit differently. Let's look at what Paul is stating here. First of all, he says, I've not obtained something, and I'm not yet perfect. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, in verses 12 to 14. Now, a couple observations here. Number one, he says we press on. In verses 12 and verses 14, he uses this term, Christy illustrated it beautifully. Uh, to press on is to move decisively. To press on is to be quick about something. And in keeping with the vacation and driving example, uh, when, when our kids were young and we lived in Northern Virginia, we would go to Florida for vacation a couple times a year. And it was about a 12, 15-hour drive, depending. And we would get up at like 2.30 in the morning, scoop the kids up, strap them in the minivan, loaded the night before, and we would drive like maniacs until they woke up. And then when they woke up, I'm waiting for, am I almost empty on gas? We have to be empty on gas and empty bladders. That was my theory, right? We do this together in tandem. We fill up and fill up and go again. I want to go. You know how well that works with four kids? Not so well. Four different clocks, four different schedules, four different whinings. You know, you know the story. You've been there, done that. Um, but I want to get there. I want to press on. 
Any dads like that? Don't raise your hand. Let's get there. You know, you lose your whole sanctification trying to go on vacation. Now be happy. We got here. Secondly, not perfect, verse 12. This word is a kin word to the word when Jesus says it is finished on the cross. Um, he's talking about the work of accomplishing redemption. The word can be translated perfected. Just think for a second. If you finish something, you've completed it in that sense. It's not perfect like a 10. It's perfected in that it's complete. That's what the word means. And again, that's a bit of a stretch for our Western brain. Another way of using this word in our nomenclature is mature. A perfect person is a mature person. You're not perfect. Your children, your spouse, your friends will tell you you ain't perfect. Uh, but we are mature, and that's the nuanced difference there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, speaking of Christ, the author writes, having been made perfect. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus wasn't made perfect. Jesus was always perfect, right? What's he saying? He completed his job. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. By his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he was complete in his work to offer salvation. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Christ's work was finished. Paul recognizes there's nothing he can do to make himself mature, but he has to grow. He has to be mature. And this, again, our if-then economy, if I do this, then I'll do that, it breaks down in a lot of ways. Finally, in this section, to lay hold of something. Three times in these verses, verse 12, that I may lay hold. Verse 12, again, which also I was laid hold. He's talking about Christ laid hold of him. And then the third time, I do not regard myself as having laid hold. When you see repetitions like this, even though they're a little bit scratch your head, this is where you want to sit and soak a little bit. What's he trying to say with this repetition? This is hard. I'll be straight up. This is a complicated series of phrases. Let me read what uh, a great scholar Frank Thielman writes about this. He says, although Paul speaks of his strenuous efforts, all described in verses 8 through 11. And that's when he talks about all the things he accomplished, his pedigree. When he talks about those things, he said, he explains he does this, not, he does this because Christ first took hold of him. Don't miss this point. Christ took hold of the Apostle Paul. And by the way, uh, this goes back to an intervention 30 years before he arrived, maybe even more than 30 years, 31, two years before he writes this, he's talking about the Damascus Road experience. Paul's had 30 years of maturity. Paul the Apostles had 30 years of growing up in his faith and his theology when he writes this. Uh, Paul's, uh, uh, he continues, his efforts would be in his own strength and misguided, he says. Instead, salvation was at the end of the race. He would only find condemnation for his own efforts, and he would never be successful to the finish line. If it's up to what Paul has to do to get to the finish line, he won't accomplish it. Paul's efforts, described in verses 12 to 14, are not working for his salvation, but working out his salvation. Living out the implications of Christ's intervention into his life. When you walk the aisle, pray the prayer, trust in Christ, when you know that you know that you know, he lives, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead. You've put your trust in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's the chopping, that's the starting block. 
That's the starting block. Now, I've got to grow in that salvation. I don't stay there. You have uh, children. You have grandsons, granddaughters. How quickly do a pair of tennis shoes last on a boy toddler? How quickly do a pair of blue jeans not get blown out in the knees on a boy? How quickly do they outgrow clothes? You don't stay there. You grow. It's normal. The rates are different, but there's got to be some progress or what? Something's wrong. They're not healthy. They're not, maybe they have a disease. Maybe you need to get the doctor to find out what's going on with this little person. They're not developing. Working out our salvation is not working for our salvation. This is such a fine nuance to our Western brain, but you, you stay with me for a moment. You don't work to get more favor with God. Period. You can't. If anyone could, Paul had the pedigree. If anyone could, Paul had the credentials. He said, I count that as rubbish, trash. We talked about the word he used to gain Christ. Nothing you bring to the table matters. We don't like to hear that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. No, not one righteous, not even one. We come as sinners. That's the acknowledgement. So I'm not working for my salvation, Arminianism. A lot of churches still hold to that. God does his part, you do your part. That's heresy. That's heresy. If you and I could contribute, why did Christ do anything? Why did he die? Because a perfect sacrifice made for us in our place on our behalf was the only sufficient way to make a way. Now, working out our salvation, again, this is nomenclature hard for us to comprehend. It's living faithfully and obediently, and Paul's going to tell us what the goal is. The goal isn't checking off boxes. Better in prayer, better in evangelism, better in giving, better in my marriage, better husband, better father, better worker, better Christian, quote-unquote. And we'll see that in just a moment. That's where you've got to think differently. Then he injects this phrase in here, forgetting what lies behind I've heard uh, more than my share of sermons on the misapplication of this verse and what it does not say and does not mean. And I'm reminded of Dr. John Hanna, who says uh, he wants to write a book called Misapplied Verses God Has Greatly Blessed. Uh, and this would be one of the chief verses that's misapplied. Uh, you forget everything about your life. You lay it all behind. No matter what your sin was, you throw it. In the no, what's he talking about leaving behind? His pedigree. All the stuff I thought got favor with God, I'm going to flush it. Because that gets me no credit. I don't get to the front of the line because I was a teacher's pet with straight A's in Hebrew. He didn't care. He doesn't care about that. So forget that and press on. Now here's this cumbersome phrase. And Christy did a fabulous job explaining this to our kids. For the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that phrase is cumbersome to the English ear. Let's take a look at what it means. First of all, let's talk about this upward call and explain a little bit about what Paul means by using this term. It's very helpful. First of all, the upward call of God references that God created everything and he provides a way of salvation. Look at chapter 4, verse 17 of Romans, where Paul wrote the last part of the verse, God who gives life to the dead... Who can raise the dead? Only God. Only God can raise a dead person. 
who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Creation and resurrection. It's striking. You could preach 10 sermons on that one phrase. Uh, I'm, an, I'm a young earth guy. You can hate me all you want. That's fine. I'm old enough. I don't care anymore. I believe God created the earth in six literal days, and he rested on the seventh. I believe he can create things in mature stance. If he can put new eyes in a congenitally blind man with mud and spit, I think he can handle creating an atmosphere and stars and water sources and trees that have fruit on them and whatever else was in the garden before they fell. I just don't have a problem with it. Science does not trump Scripture. God is beyond the laws of science and thermodynamics and physics. Does he put them in place? Yes. Yes. But he, you know, the guy who made that stuff, I think he can deal with it. I just think he, call me a simpleton. I don't really care anymore. I'm not mad at you. Be mad at me. That's your problem. If he can raise the dead and call creation out of nothing, secondly, he calls, his call is irrevocable. I remember in college uh, when I was in a, small Bible study with some college guys. We went with the Romans, and this verse rocked my world. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 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 Um, I don't know your opinion on it. It doesn't really matter. It was just observation. The Canadian truckers and the GoFundMe page. The GoFundMe decides this isn't within their whatever philosophy, politics, whatever they want to say or do, and they go, oh, we're going to Give that money away to charity. Whoo, did that kick up a dust storm? Everybody got lathered up on social media and go, oh, we're going to give it to charities. Whoa, 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 I didn't tell you to give it to charity. I said to give it to that organization. And then there's this lawyer, this uh, governor who likes to use the sword. And he says, wait a minute, I'll sue you. That's, uh, that's malfeasance. You can't use funds given for X for Y. you got to give the money back or give it to what it's, it's fun to watch, frankly. I love this kind of stuff, as you can tell. Um, God's gift and calling are irrevocable. When he called you and you trusted him by faith, irrevocable. The gift he gave you, probably more than one, the gifts he gave you are irrevocable. How we use those gifts is a different story, but he gave them. Um, when Cindy and I, and I'm so thankful that, to be married to a, a person, who, a woman who loves to give as much as I do. We love giving and we learned many years ago, early in our marriage, we can't outgive God. Not the way the prosperity theologians teach that heresy, but in the sense that you can live on 90% or 80% or 75% just as well. If you live within your income, not talking about the craziness, but you can do it. And we love doing it. And people get mad. Michael, you're bragging. No, I'm giving God credit because we did what he told us to do. We love to give. And when we give, we often talk about, well, how are they going to use it? Can we trust the organization? Do we like this? And, and we have the same conversation, especially if it's a new group or a new organization. The ones we give to that we love so much, we don't, we don't think about it twice. She'll come and she'll say, okay, we've got to give away X uh, over and above what we're doing. Uh, what do you think? And I go, well, these are the three things we like to give to. Bing, bing, bing. And it's that quick. And we're happy to do it. We love doing it. And we don't ask, can I have it back? We don't ask, how'd you use that money? Because we know the people, how much more? That's a dumb illustration, easily. You're right, because God's calling and gift is irrevocable. Thirdly, 
God's call is our motivation to walk in a worthy manner. Two verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who, there it is, calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You don't earn it. You aren't better. He didn't look at the curve. He doesn't look at who the A students are, who the best athletes are, who the best songwriters are. He looks at those he saved. He looks at those he called. And then chapter 4, verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. What a clarifying verse. He did not call you to live in licentiousness. He didn't call you and say, I'll forgive you all your sins you have done, are doing, and will do, and go live in sin. He said, no, I'm calling you out of that to live, what does he say? In sanctification. To be conformed and transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Finally, the second part of the group of verses, and a little shorter in content, mature and maturing, verses 15 and 16. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal it, that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. The onward journey of maturity is what Paul is saying here. You're not perfect. You're not better than anybody. You're mature. So as a mature Christian, we should look around and say, I can learn from this person who shares Christ on the backstroke. I can learn from this person who really understands prayer and it's not rote and meaningless. I can really learn from this person who's a great mom and dad. I can really learn from this person who's been a great steward of their finances and they, they give generously and they care about the kingdom. So on and on and on. If, if we're mature, we have an opportunity to help others in the things that God has shown us. A couple lessons. Number one, how do we grow and mature and live in view of this upward call of Christ? It's a cumbersome phrase. It's not legalism. It's certainly not licentiousness. So how do we understand liberty? And Paul's going to say you forget what lies behind. That's forgetting the things you rested upon to think you were better or good. This is hard. It is hardwired in your heart and in your mind, and you may not even be aware of it. It comes out with things like, well, you know, um, we don't say it this way, but what we mean is I'm better than people that do this. I, I'm not having an affair. I'm not living outside the boundaries of my marriage bed. I'm not addicted to pornography. I don't look at pornography. I don't lie and cheat and steal. I'm a better person than you. No. I have no standing if those things were all 100% true. <laughs> we had two issues in the last few days where we were undercharged and something was sent that wasn't ours. Uh, it's just, just crazy the world we live in. Order something from Amazon. Something comes in a box that I didn't order. You know how hard it is to return something that you didn't order that you want to give back to Amazon? You're like, you're killing me, Smalls. I mean, come on. How do I get this thing back to you? I, I told Cindy, I said, you know, I probably should just keep it. The amount of money, I'm going to give it away. The amount of money they're spending dealing with me and the thing probably cost eight bucks to them. And it took an hour and a half. And then they say, okay, we're going to come and get it. Great. 
And if you're not there, then you're going to have to take it to UPS. What? I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm getting punished for it. I don't have any passion about this. <laughs> this morning, I get an email that something else was delivered. It wasn't delivered. Oh, Lord, you got a sense of humor. I can't wait to call Amazon again. It's so much fun. Oh, God help me keep my patience. Um, what, where, how'd I get here? <laughs> I want to be mature. That's where I think I was going. And I'm not right now. Um, it's something as silly as a person that told me it was $99 and he charged me $64 on the credit card. And I, act, I had the stupidity to say, Cindy, what do I do? And you call him back and pay him, you idiot. You know, okay, I just was checking. Christ does not care about what I do to make me better. He cares about, am I becoming more like him? That's a hard nuance. That's a hard thing for this Western brain to get to. Secondly, am I living for the resurrection? If you think the first one's hard, this one's really hard. This is not a death wish. I'm ready to die. What is Paul saying when he talks about living for the resurrection? I truly think when we cross this threshold of death into eternal life, in, in the smallest measurement that can be measured by humanity, we're going to go, oh, what was I worried about? Why was I so exasperated about fill in the blank? Why did I waste all this money and time and energy on this? I was over here thinking I was doing the right thing, and Jesus is going, you know, as Hendricks often said, I really don't think I meant it to be that hard on you. But living for the resurrection is, what is he saying? Who is the contemporary writer, all the things of the world will go strangely dim? Who was that? You remember? In the light of his glory and grace. Anyway, it's, it's that phrase, and I want to say, no, the things of the world will be gone in the light of his glory and grace. We so tenaciously hold on to the horizontal when we need to be living for the vertical. That's what it means to live for the resurrection. I, I, I don't like to say it this categorically. Nothing you do gets merit with God. Walking in Christ, living for him, Am I more like him is what he wants. Paul was not trying to be a better sinner or a better saint. He was trying to be faithful to his Savior. Finally, what does Christ think of your life? That's a hard question. And that's one that deserves a piece of paper and a pen and a book by the lake or the pond or somewhere where you're unplugged and disconnected and maybe read some in your Bible and ask, what do you think of my life? They're big questions. They're deep questions. Christianity is not something we should toy with. It's not burdensome. It really isn't. It may be hard mentally. It may be counter the way we live life by anesthetizing ourselves with the next thing we're going to binge watch. 
or the next device that when I get that new phone, tablet, computer, my life's going to be so much better the next iteration of the watch or whatever it is that we hold out hope for, the next home, the next car, stuff that it's okay. It's not, it's not, it's not sin in itself. No way. Boy, do we need a recalibration. I do. I do. Well, he writes, as many as are perfect, have this attitude in you. Here's the good news. If this stuff bothers you, you're growing up. If it bugs you, you're maturing. If it doesn't bother you, we have a bigger problem. And that tension of am I growing, am I maturing, is what drives you and me to ask the questions. Okay, Lord, not what do I do, but who am I? How do I live this way in a fallen, crazy culture to stand out with courage and joy and look to the future because he's accomplished life over death?